This podcast is produced during the pandemic and hence the audio quality is home produced. Welcome to Beyond the Lines, a podcast by Roly about books, culture and our times. Did you know that Gandhi had been a muse to hundreds of India's artists, photographers, painters, sculptors when he was alive and after, and yet he himself had very little time for or interest in art as such. This is the subject of Sumati Ramaswamy's latest book, Gandhi in the Gallery: The Art of Disobedience, published by Roly Books. And do you know that Sumati's guilty pleasure when on a break? or on chutti is to binge watch pakistani tv serials and daily soaps surprised well as am i sumati and i get on a phone call to talk about her latest book her writing process and a whole lot more i am chirag thakkar and this is beyond the lines so sumati let me get started by asking you a few sort of uh, basic questions uh, for our listeners why gandhi and why gandhi and art and are there other such figures like martin luther king mandela mao mother teresa who've been iconized and celebrated in the world of art thank you thank you so much chirag uh, also for inviting me to chat about both the book and my larger interests in, in on the topic Well, I grew up in India in the 1970s as a as a committed Nehruvian. Uh, Gandhi was really not on my horizon other than, you know, as a symbolic person and taking October 2nd as a holiday and so on. But I really learned to appreciate him more as a teacher when I uh, uh, began teaching in the US uh, 30 years ago. and as you may know uh, and alas gandhi is perhaps the only indian that the average us student knows of so several of us who teach uh, indian history courses in us classrooms approach india's history through the lens of gandhi and particularly especially living you know in this hyper consumer materialist capitalist society that is the us i got completely drawn into his theories of being a non modern person and really how to live a life disobediently against the forces of capitalist modernity so i had begun a book which you know well because that's how you and i met doing research for the book called which became eventually the goddess and the nation it was a book on cartography and map making but again intriguingly that book took me into the world of popular visual culture and the figure of mother india and lo and behold as i was doing the research for that book with these few fantastic colorful lithographs featuring mother india gandhi would often appear in these lithographs in the company of mother india which is interesting because he's the father of the nation paradoxically but he often is portrayed as a child of mother india in fact there's some fantastic images where he's sitting on the lap of mother india holding the spinning wheel as if it was a little toy right 
And I wrote about it both in the book, but also in a follow-up article that I was invited to write in a book that Gayatri Sinha curated, which is where I first explored the gallery artists, you know, the highly paid singular artists who are featured in, you know, major museums and galleries rather than in these mass-produced lithographs how the gallery artist comes to look at Gandhi. And that's how, you know, the book Gandhi in the gallery came into being. And one of my most interesting revelations for me in the course of doing the research for the Gandhi in the gallery book is the extent to which, and I learned this actually from the artists themselves, Nandala Bose or Mukul Day, others who I featured in the book, that they saw Gandhi as an artist. And some, that was something I had missed in my earlier work, uh, mostly because I didn't have the voices of the artists. I was just looking at the images of the mass lithographs. And because they saw Gandhi as an artist, I began to wonder what is it that they're seeing in him. And that has led me to think of Gandhi himself as sort of an artist of disobedience is the way I have characterized him in the book. Right. And this also, I think, is one of the reasons that artists are drawn to him in such large numbers and in such a variety of media that they have explored him. And this would perhaps distinguish him possibly from these other iconic figures that you mentioned, uh, Martin Luther King, Mandela, Mother Teresa. There's so many. The 20th century has produced so many of these, what my colleague and friend Bishtupriya Ghosh calls bio icons, right? Through the work of media itself, these larger than life, hyper real figures. But Gandhi stands out even amongst them. It's my real uh, sense because artists are drawn to him. They see him as a fellow artist. I think he stands out because they see him as somebody who they are moderns themselves, but they see he's, you know, worked against being a modern person. So I think they're intrigued by this. He's, he's the most written about Indian, undoubtedly, certainly amongst historians. It's almost a rite of passage for historians of the 20th century Indian history, right? to write about Gandhi. But that's very interesting. Uh, I, I, I see what you, what you mean here by uh, the fact that every historian in that sense has had to deal with this question of Gandhi or encounter Gandhi in some capacity or the other, be it in the classroom or be it as a scholar in your research. So humor me here. Let me ask you, if you had the chance to have dinner with Gandhi, what are the both of you likely to talk about? How interesting. And I'm smiling because, you know, Gandhi hardly ate. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure whether he had dinner per se. Actually, it's an interesting question. There's a lot written on Gandhi and food. I know you yourself are publishing a book on Gandhi and food. It would be interesting to see. We have photographs and actually some interesting paintings. There's a wonderful Atul Dodia painting, which has not made it into the book, but which I'm very intrigued by of Gandhi sitting down to have a meal with uh, Yogananda Paramahamsa, who visited him in Varda. And it's a really interesting painting because a little uh, Gandhi's grandson is sitting between them. And Yogananda has actually written about sitting down for a meal with Gandhi. I don't know whether he even liked talking while he was eating, you know. I would actually be very interested, given the earlier point I made about his ambivalence about art and the fact that he made some really critical comments about some important artists of his own time. You know, I would be very interested in what I think is the foundational argument of my book, 
which is that today, in today's India, which is, you know, so different from the India of Gandhi's times, but also really has departed from the India of Gandhi's dreams, um, I have argued that the artist has really emerged as Gandhi's conscience keeper. And I would be very interested in seeing how Gandhi would respond to that kind of an argument. As you know, Gandhi loved to argue, discuss. He was very open to getting new ideas, right? So I would be really excited, you know, to have a chance to have Gandhi respond to that question. So that's one. Uh, another possibility is I just finished, after I finished working on Gandhi in the gallery, I did a fun little digital project. And I'm calling it little. It actually mushroomed into something fairly large. And it's called B is for Papu. And it's a digital project featuring children's paintings on Gandhi. I think something like that would really appeal to Gandhi. As you know, he was very interested in his own theories of education and practice of education in getting children to learn how to draw first, even before they wrote. He himself loved hanging out with children. I think amongst the most interesting aspects of Gandhi that, again, few scholars have really written about, which also drew me to the topic, is how much time Gandhi spent with children. He hung out with them more so than any major politician we know of. He spent enormous time with them. He spoke to them, wrote about them, wrote to them. So it would be fantastic for me to get a sense of what Gandhi thought about that. Uh, the fact that I was drawn to uh, doing this and how he would respond to something like that. So I don't know whether that answers your question. It does. I'm sure this will be an interesting conversation. I don't know what's even going to be on your plate and it could just be peanut butter and bread. <laughs> It'll be a frugal meal. And uh, But yeah, that's, that'll be a fun dinner if you've got a chance to have it. So no I want to alcohol, move... right? No alcohol, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no wine. Yes. What's a dinner without a glass of wine? But <laughs> Yeah, it could also be a very raw dinner with mostly salad uh, because I think he moved to a lot of raw foods uh, in his sort of uh, middle age and later life. But I want to move on now to the power of the image, Sumati. We live in an age where images have the power to move us. They have the power to bring down governments, start revolutions, cases in point, the Arab Spring or the attack and siege of, of students in, and the campus of Jamia Millia Islamia around this time last year, between 2019 and 20, early 2020 in India, or the Black Lives Matter movement following George Floyd's uh, tragic institutional murder, right? So there's this, right? There's the power of the image, and there's also icons in the making. There are icons that are already very celebrated of our times, of the visual culture that we are living, like Obama, Greta Thunberg, Malala, so I'm wondering, as a historian, are you able to tell how these icons will be remembered and what your thoughts on the power of the image are? Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that question, Chirag. And I think I want to respond to this first, possibly as, uh, as an Indian and then as a historian of India. Because, uh, and especially somebody who doesn't live in India at this time, but, you know, I grew up in India, 
And I, I come there all the time. And as a scholar now, I am so taken with India's iconophilia as a mode of expression. So all of these, there's a number of things that you mentioned, especially the CAA protests and beginning with India. And of course, globally, we can then begin to think about other image-saturated events. But in India itself, you know, the turn to the visual, the CAA protests, the farmers' protests that are going on around us as we speak, the number of images that have been produced from all of these moments almost instantaneously has been um, fantastic and fascinating uh, to observe uh, from a distance. So there's something about the iconophilic culture of India, the love of the image, to keep the image moving, to keep rethinking, reworking, images which leads to a very saturated uh, lands, visual landscape, which I think is very interesting. It is not that it is without risks, as you know, censorship is rampant in places like India, but other places, images have the capacity to uh, provoke in a manner that even the written word does not seem to do so. I put that very carefully. But my wonderful colleague and friend Kajri Jain has actually posed this as a question. What is it about the image that seems to provoke, you know, much more so, you know, these kinds of outrage, you know, think of the Hussein controversy, right? Um, which, you know, concerned so many of us. So there's also, there's also the dangers if you live in an iconophilic culture. Obama, for example, as you mentioned, has become, you know, he's, uh, he's also a subject of cartoons, as you know, he's got these funny ears, he himself jokes about it. So that is something that the cartoonist is drawn to. But there's, you know, really interesting paintings of Obama that have, you know, emerged, including the, the formal portrait that's there in the National Portrait Gallery. Or Mandela, for example. Mandela actually has some really interesting artwork that I would love to continue to explore. And also they themselves, that's the other thing to remember. I think many uh, 20th century figures became uh, very aware of the power of the image, certainly post-television, right? The power of the media to get their word out. So they also made use of the image. So it's not only the image making use of them, right? And to find its way to them, but they themselves sought out the image too, you know, and image work. So I think there's both of these things going on that I um, makes actually for a historian like me, the image such an interesting object to work with, even though I love working with text and words too. I think that's that's a very interesting point you made, that it's not just that the image in that sense is attaching itself to the subject or uh, to the icon, but the icon is also very actively making use of this uh, image culture, you know, very consciously uh, participating in in their own iconization, especially if the artist is is alive and has access to you know the tools of of mass media, etc. Um, let's talk a little bit about the process of the book. Now, for those of you who are listening in, I am Sumati's editor who commissioned her to do this book sometime in 2018. And it's been such a labor of love to have worked on this beautiful book, which you can order from our bookstores uh, or from cmyk.com or from Amazon. But to you, Sumati, um, is there any artist in the book that you featured, right, who's living and alive and has held Gandhi as is her, their muse? And um, uh, is there an artwork of theirs that you saw come alive in real time? 
Did you were you able to be privy to part, you know, participate in the process of an artwork being made, which you then decided to feature in the book? Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, one of the privileges uh, of working on this project, and I say this as a historian, since we mostly deal with the past and dead things, right? So for me, one of the privileges of working on this project was to meet so many living artists. And I'll never forget their kindness and generosity. You know, I think I would say that every every work of art that I found fantastic found its way into the book. And you were, you as my editor were kind enough to indulge me with this, right? Uh, I love the image that's there on the cover of the book uh, by um, the wonderful sculptor um, Talur, Talur's image. And I had a wonderful day in New Jersey. He had a major uh, uh, show. I went up to visit him and spent the day with him. It was magical. It was terrific. I have loved hanging out with Gigi Scaria, many of whose images are there in the book, the Delhi-based Kerala artist. Gigi is really, really funny. uh, And I've had the best time you know he's he's a little younger than me and you know he's pretty irreverent so it's easy to sort of hang out with him and not be in awe or with his you know wonderful body of work the artist who's most featured in my book is of course the amazing Atul Dodia Mumbai based and he Atul in spite of the fact that he's one of India's most celebrated artists you know, took time to, you know, just spend, you know, uh, go over his work with me, which is very tough, very difficult work. But you asked me very specifically, is there something, a new work that I encountered? And the one that comes to mind is a work by Sachin Karne, which is featured in the book. It's a brand new work. It's for the, I think anybody who gets the book will see it for the first time because it's not being reproduced anywhere else prior to this. It's called Ambush. And really I was ambushed by this painting, if I can play with the title of the work. And I had gone to uh, Vadodara, Baroda, as I call it. I grew up as a child in Baroda, so I still think of it as Baroda. But I'd gone up to Vadodara to meet Sachin. Several of Sachin's works are featured in the book. And I found him, you know, uh, to be wonderfully, you know, both informative, but so kind. And he invited me, you know, I was supposed to meet him the next day, but he suddenly said, oh, you know, I have a show opening. Why don't you just meet me there? So I showed up at in the gallery and I walk in and Sachin's, many of Sachin's works were on display. Sachin himself was not, had not yet arrived in the gallery. And I saw this work, a large painting uh, with, you know, a figure in the middle with a garden-like uh, background. And I thought, oh, isn't that so familiar? You know, it's re- resonating with something in my own head. And I thought to myself, my God, I'm just so obsessed with my Gandhi project. I see Gandhi everywhere. And then Sachin showed up uh, and I said, you know, I'm very drawn. It was a large, a very large painting. It covered the entire wall of the gallery. And I said, I'm so intrigued by this work. It reminds me of Gandhi's assassination. And Sachin laughed and he said, that's, you know, what he was intending with it. A sort of like a garden-like background in which there was a single figure advancing with a gun in hand, right? So you know, it brought to mind, of course, Gandhi's assassination in a Delhi garden. And the paint had not even dried on this work. In fact, Sachin was in the process of finishing the work. You know, it was, the the show was opening the next day, or maybe it was opening later that evening. I'm forgetting the exact details. And so I thought, wow, what a privilege 
to actually uh, be present at the birth of a work. And Sachin was so kind, he immediately had a professional photographer photograph it. You were so kind. We had already put the book to bed, so to speak. And I said, Chirag, I would love to include one more image, please. And of course, it's now in the book. I see. Uh, That's interesting. I cannot emphasize enough how wonderful and how moving and powerful that work of art is. I have one question for you before we move on to our next and the final segment, um, which is about what you just mentioned earlier, the assassination of of Gandhi. And I'm I'm curious here, uh, and indulge me, were Gandhi not assassinated? Do you think he would have been the kind of celebrated figure that he's come to become today? Or would he have died a rather obscure, nameless, uh, well, not nameless, but um, just an obscure death? The first thing I might want to say in response to that question is that I think Gandhi had already died a social death before his physical death. As you know, from the mid-30s, partly of his own accord, but partly because of the dynamics of the Indian national movement, he had been pushed to the margins. He had really retreated into his ashrams and and so on. He came out for a bit in the 1940s with the Quit India movement. He tried a bit with, you know, a Jinnah and so on. But really he had become, and he was there as this kind of symbolic spiritual father figure, but really he was not relevant very much at all. Certainly on August 15th, as you know, he was not even in Delhi at the celebrations that marked India's independence. He was in Calcutta. Uh, So he had died what I would call a social death before his physical death. And uh, very interestingly, Sarojini Naidu uh, and a couple, actually Sarojini Naidu most importantly pointed out that, you know, he wouldn't have wanted to die, you know, he died the kind of perfect death that he would have wanted. And others have commented on it. And I've written about this in that last chapter of the book about the fact that Gandhi, you know, the paradox of the apostle of nonviolence as uh, he saw his life, you know, going the way it went, he himself recognizing that maybe the violence of the uh, violent ending would make his lifelong message of nonviolence really powerful, right? So himself was yearning, it seems, almost for a violent death. How in the visual realm, uh, these colorful lithographs that show Gandhi dying cheerfully, bleeding on the map of India with a big smile on his face, may actually be truer to Gandhi's own yearning for a violent death than the more beautiful, melancholic images produced by some of some gallery artists, say someone like uh, Atul Dodia or Hussein, Emma Hussein, who was very drawn to Gandhi's assassination uh, as a theme in his life. In fact, Hussein, in his memoirs, has written about how he was in Bombay. He was working, I think, on the street. As you know, he was a hoardings painter at that point in the 1940s. And he heard the announcement of Gandhi's death that moved him so much that he rushed home and he did a painting of Gandhi. And his return to the theme of Gandhi's death and most of the paintings that Hussein has done of Gandhi's assassination, and there are many of them, only a couple of which are featured in the book, they have this sense of melancholia, right? The loss and all of that, which is, you know, very much in contrast 
to these colorful lithographs which show a happy Gandhi, right? Dying, you know, but nevertheless cheerful as can be. But even um, uh, retrospectively, we can look back and we can see how assassinations, especially political deaths, can be very productive, especially in contexts and cultures where there are traditions of martyrdom, as we have in India. The same point can be made about um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Some have speculated on this, that it was his manner of his death that gave him a kind of visibility that's really set him apart from other major figures of the civil rights movement, right, who have not really had that kind of visibility that King has received. And I remember now, you know, there was this interesting cartoon that I showed to my students that was produced by an American cartoonist whose name I'm blanking on at the moment, but this was printed right a few days after King's assassination, in which features King and Gandhi, and Gandhi saying to King uh, in the cartoonist's words that the odd thing about uh, being killed in this manner or something like that, is that the assassin uh, thinks that they have killed you, right? So Gandhi's sense, as communicated through uh, this cartoonist, that assassinations actually guarantee you a kind of life. Political death guarantees you a kind of life, afterlife, if you will. That's very interesting. I think the, this idea of this perfect death, that, that he had this sort of very perfect kind of death, which gave him this kind of um, uh, almost kind of uh, omnipresent afterlife and this much celebrated um, figure that he became. And I think you're right in the book about Sirojini Naidu that you mentioned earlier, where um, on page 148, Sirojini Naidu reportedly exclaimed to the women gathered in tears over Gandhi's corpse that fateful evening when he was assassinated, what is all this snivelling about? Would you rather he died of old age or indigestion? This was the only death great enough for him, unquote. I want to now quickly move on to uh, get to know your author, our segment where we ask you um, these fun questions that you don't typically ask a historian on, on, on an ordinary evening. Um, and this is a rapid fire round, so you have little time to think and respond to these questions. There'll be a lot of back and forth. So I think we already told our listeners that uh, typically on, on a chutti or on a break, your guilty pleasure is binge watching Pakistani TV serials. But I want to ask you now, uh, are you able to picture yourself? How do you imagine yourself retiring or aging um, on an ordinary evening? What are you doing post-retirement? Post-retirement, what I would be doing I think, oh, very boringly, maybe reading, maybe hiking. I love the outdoors, so I guess I may be too old to hike too much. Uh, bicycling, I hope to be active and, you know, engaged. <laughs> I can't even think of a life post-retirement, right? And I have lots of examples of people around me who are retired but living really amazingly active lives. So, mm. yeah. Okay, what's for, what's for dinner tonight? Oh, most likely something Mexican tonight, I think, mm. you know, yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm a vegetarian. I've remained a vegetarian. People are really amazed. I grew up as a vegetarian in India, mostly because of family traditions. But now, of course, you know, out of ethical conviction. So most well, likely vegetarian tacos. Gandhi would be pleased with your dietary yeah, choices. <laughs> <laughs> if you were an animal, what would you be? Oh, without a doubt, a dog. Actually, a Labrador Retriever mix. Mm. 
one travel that. destination that you are likely to go to as soon as this pandemic is is behind us and if this virus doesn't mutate any further where are you likely to go oh i think i would like to head to scotland mm i love that part of the world sounds amazing how many cups of coffees or teas do you do in a day typically Oh my gosh don't ask that's embarrassing and i drink american mugs right style not indian when i'm in india i have little cups of you know chai which is great maybe four american mug size cups of tea no i don't drink coffee very much at all yeah okay. i drink too much tea yeah three writers whose work have had a profound influence on you as a scholar or just for fun just for fun just for fun Oh just for fun um I like uh, well I'm I'm a, a big sucker for thrillers so I love and you know recently as you know John Le Carre just passed away so I loved I grew up reading Le Carre novels and I still read them as a scholar I really love the writings of the anthropologist Anand Pandian who's a beautiful writer I also uh, loved reading uh, the earlier salman rushdi mm. uh my absolute favorite book is harun and the sea of stories mm. so those would be some timothy would you go to watch a movie alone in a theater in better times are you the kind of person who does that no especially indian in hindi films right you have to watch them with people you know and and do you hate social media or do you love social media or are you ambivalent about it uh i just don't uh like it i don't like that kind of instant um kind of existence i think um so yeah i don't hate it i just don't do it That's i do not- think it has real potential to cause harm in our world so and it has i think So that's not just how that's not how you roll that that's fine and cake or pie cake or pie quickly pie pie always yeah and my final question is who would you be best friends with gandhi margaret thatcher indira gandhi or mao oh none of them maybe <laughs> friends uh, best friends uh, gandhi of course often wrote to hitler well he went, not often that couple times he wrote to hitler right he addressed him as friend so which is very interesting and jitish kalat has done a beautiful work around this i'm always coming back to gandhi and art oh the young indira not the grown up indira who you know the prime minister indira but the indira as a girl is was truly a fascinating fascinating figure she was really a very thoughtful young woman uh and yeah i think i would find her a interesting person to hang out with well i'm sure that would be a that be quite a friendship uh thank you sumiti thank you so much for being part of this has been such a pleasure always a pleasure talking to you uh, it never feels like work and um, i can't uh, wait to see you whenever you're next in india and get a cup of masala chai with you <laughs> thank you thank you so much anchira for this opportunity it's good to hang out a little bit with you i too oh love you know this has been one of the pleasures of the last couple of years having you as editor cum friend holding my hand while i try to finish the book and you know keeping me you know on track but always very sweetly and gently huh you're a wonderful ideal ideal editor i should say uh for thank any you. author to work with thank you sumiti thank you everyone for listening in this was beyond the lines by roli if you liked this show 
then subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and check out all our books on rollybooks.com that is r o l i b o o k s.com since you are here you can get a 20% discount on all the featured books in this podcast series with a special coupon code btl20 on cmykbookstore.com that is cmykbookstore.com we'll be back soon with our next episode in the meantime do tell others about our podcast and stay tuned